think we're all deflated by the challenges, the issues that the sport throws at you. From doping to fights that don't happen to lackluster cards to feeling that we're getting shafted as boxing fans. I think we're all getting tired of it. And it's a growing... Well, it's probably a more snowball effect where people are getting increasingly disillusioned and rightly stepping away. I genuinely think people have a three to five year love affair with boxing and you either stick at it after that or you just leave it alone, rarely ever go back, if ever. So here I am in 2020, um, you know, still doing it, new decade, same energy, same passion, God willing. But I just wanted to do a test episode just to see A, where my voice is at and B, just to warm myself up into the routine of recording you know, I'm in the middle of weight loss January, as I imagine everyone else is, you know, just trying to work off the excesses of Christmas. So, you know, if by some miracle I'm making under 100 kilos, let's consider that a massive success. But I just wanted to keep it short today. I only really wanted to cover two main topics and then maybe just some odds and ends on the back end of this. But, you know, today was just a hard day for me because I think, you know, people know that I'm pretty close to Liam Cameron um, just through my association with Dennis Hobson and Porky and everyone. I've got to know Liam and his trainer, Chris Smedley, who, you know, everyone knows I think is a good man and a hell of a trainer. So, you know, today Liam Cameron found out that his appeal had been unsuccessful against his doping violation ban. So just to set the scene, a couple of years ago, so in 2018, Liam popped for the metabolites of cocaine. So not for cocaine, the metabolites of cocaine. And most people know about, if you know about doping, what you know is sometimes it's the metabolites that catch you. So even if I've been taking nandrolone, you might not catch the nandrolone in me, but the metabolites, almost the waste products of that nandrolone will still be in me. Now the amount that they found in Liam was tiny. It might be like, like 25 pictograms or something or nanograms. I have no idea, but it's not an amount that would suggest you were using, if that makes sense. And so this has been Liam's defense. Liam's defense is, look, contamination. Because to my knowledge, Liam's not really a drug user. I don't think he is at all. Um, Liam's, Liam's a great guy. He's a, he's a good northern lad. That's how I describe him, just to set the scene about who Liam Cameron actually is. So... Liam Cameron, multiple schoolboy ABA champion, like a hell of a talent. Like he's one of those kids who went from being really good as a schoolboy to winning the ABAs and being on GB's radar. And I think had he had wiser heads around him, he'd have probably gone for the 2012 squad. And I think four years under Rob McCracken and you would have had the boxer Anthony Fowler aspires to be. Liam Cameron has it all. He's... He's smart enough in the ring. He's strong. He's fit. He's got a chin of iron. I don't think he's ever been dropped in sparring or in a fight. And that says a lot because, you know, he's risked it against guys like Callum Smith and, you know, Callum Johnson. He's been in with the big boys. And as a professional, he was a Commonwealth champion. And he was comfortably the Commonwealth champion to the sense that you're looking for that unification. I think, you know, a British Commonwealth unification for Liam would have been fantastic, but that wasn't to be because obviously they they found the substances in him and they gave him a four year ban. 
Now, I've heard various stories. The four-year ban was because he had popped for something else before. Maybe, maybe not. I didn't delve too deeply. But it leaves you in this really horrible position because I sit on the horns of a dilemma at the moment. When it comes to doping, I've always been a, if you catch him, ban him. But that's not the world we live in now. In the world we live in now, it's, if you catch him, work out whether they're too big for us to ban. And if they're too big for us to ban, pretend we didn't catch him. I think that's where we are in boxing. There are some boxers who are too rich to ever fail a test. And I would almost speculate UCAD would rather they never fail the test. And UCAD will do what it needs to do to make sure they don't fail a test. And this isn't unusual. This happens in every sport. This happens in every sport where subtle hints will be dropped that the testers are coming. And so people know that if they're pissing hot, don't be in on that day. Call in sick. You with the physio. You're getting your knee seen to. You know that. I know many rugby clubs where they know when the testers are coming. And when the testers come, the guys who are pissing hot don't show up. So the people who get tested are clean or academy players. So it's problem solved. It's the same in American football, same in the NBA. You know when you're being tested. It's not something that's spoken about, but it is true. You know when you're being tested. And that's problematic for me for a number of reasons. One, it creates a two-tier doping system. And this is what I call the law of perverse incentives. The more people you can catch, the stronger their case is for additional funding. But when you get more funding, you want to also reduce your costs. And the last thing you want is litigation. So actually, you create this perverse incentive where you're better off catching some guy that plays non-league football than you are catching a premiership player. You're better off catching the 20-year-old kid that plays for an academy side than you are catching an England international rugby player. Because UCAD don't want that hassle. It's why they were probably frustrated that Dillian had any Dianabol in him because they realized that this is a problem for them. They have to be seen to be doing something. But in doing something, they were inviting legal action on top. And so they were looking for a back door to get out of where everyone saves face. And that's what we have. Now, I'm not saying Dillian was guilty. It's not my place to judge one way or the other. What I am saying is he's going to be treated differently from a Liam Cameron. Because if ever someone had a strong case for contamination, it's cocaine. Like most of us at some point have ingested cocaine. It's that prevalent in society on pub tables, on 20 pound notes, on 50 pound notes. You might shake someone's hand. And you know I mean, shake someone's hand, wipe your eye, it's in your system. I'm not saying it's in there in effect that can, you know, do anything to you in terms of like psychoactive effects. No, but it's in you in that, the, the benzocaine will come out in a drug test. And so every athlete, I don't care who you are, I don't care how clean you think you are, you're at risk for popping like Liam did. You might be a young boxer now who's selling a few grams here and there just to, you know, cover your training costs. I'm not here to judge you. What I am saying to you is, it's on your fingers. You know, your girlfriend, you might, you might kiss her and get it. You know what I mean? It's, it's so prevalent that 
every boxer is at risk. And as I said, the, the dilemma for me is catching Bannon and then it happens to someone you consider to be a friend and you go, well, I can see how it didn't happen. And I guess you can become blinded to things. And that's why I'm not the guy adjudicating in this case. But what I am upset about is the lack of consistency. You know, if you're going to fail, just have one standard ban. Because doping is one of these weird things. And there's not many instances where this exists, where you're guilty until proven innocent. So drug tests are strict liability offenses. If the stuff is in you, you're guilty. And you spend the rest of your time trying to explain how you're not guilty. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, we've heard everything from kissing vigorously to malicious injections of PEDs into athletes by, by the coaches that used to abuse them sexually. And there are all kinds of crazy stories around this. But, you know, the summary and the, and the key takeaway from this is Liam Cameron's now in a position where he'll probably never box again. And he'll never get a chance to fulfill his potential. Because he was reckless, I don't know. Because I don't know how the stuff got in his system. Because he was unlucky, that's what I'm inclined to believe. But if I believe that for Liam, I have to believe that for Dillian. And so this is why you're on the horns of a dilemma. Because it becomes a slippery slope where if you believe one excuse that's plausible, you must believe another excuse that's plausible, and so forth. So you get to a point where you can kind of see how anything could be doping. But I am legit just gutted for Liam. I like Liam. I think Liam's a great guy. He's a hell of a fighter. And it's tragic that we've never got to see the best of him because him versus Liam Williams would have been a hell of a fight. But it's it's just, it's sad. And I am gutted. And it's a lesson to you young boxers. Man. You really have to police what goes in your body. Because you, if you don't know what goes in there, my goodness, you might get caught out. And once you get to that world level and you're making a few mil, just make sure your supplements and everything are pharmaceutical grade because you don't want to blow your career like this. And it's tragic. And I don't know what the young man will do because it's not like he can switch to another sport. Once you're banned from sport, you're banned. You can't train. You can't be around boxers anymore. You can't do anything in sport. You just have to sit there and try not to gain weight. And I'm gutted for him. I really, really am. But let me just lighten the mood a bit and talk about something that often brings a smile to my face, which is, you know, disowning what they're doing in America. I find it really interesting because if you look at America at the moment, you have three powerhouse promotional entities and broadcasters in bed with each other. So Al Heyman's in with Fox. Bob Arum's in with ESPN, which is Disney. And Eddie Hearn is in with DAZN, who don't really have a backup, but they apparently have a war chest. And it's this really weird place where people are almost trying to recreate that Mayweather effect. Where it wasn't unusual to do 500,000, 600,000, 700,000 pay-per-view buys on Showtime, on HBO. It wasn't unusual to do those numbers. You know, Floyd is in the two and a half, three million. Yes, absolutely. But there were many boxes that were doing, you know, four, five hundred thousand. 
Robert Guerrero, Andre Berta was in the hundreds of thousands. I don't know if that was a pay-per-view, but that was in terms of viewers, that was in the high hundreds of thousands. And so does come into the space believing that they can do this, that they can build boxing into a viable commodity that will attract fans and subscribers. Um, Thomas Hauser did an article on this. There's a part one and a part two on BoxingScene.com. Definitely worth the read. Um, obviously, you know, I'm going to claim that he stole that from me because, you know, I've done my zone pieces how many times over the years and I've been keen to observe what these guys are trying to achieve in the sport because it's not necessarily clear what the end game is. We know that the entry point is boxing because there are no friction points. You know, you can essentially have anyone promote a boxing fight and anyone broadcast one. Unlike American football, where the rights are sewn up, baseball, where the rights are sewn up, or the Premiership and Champions League in, in football, where the rights are sewn up. And so Hauser's done this, I don't want to say forensics, I don't think he's told us anything we don't know, but it's always good just to revisit these things and to look. And like, I just want to keep it summarised because I want to finish in under 20 minutes. The zone's in this really interesting place where if you look at the numbers now, where they've got about 800,000 subscribers versus a projection of three and a half million, you'd see that as a massive failure. And if you want to give Hearn a kicking, give him a kicking based on that. If he pipes up with a clever answer, then tell him of those 800,000, only 20% pay up the $100 up front. Give him a kicking with that too. But you can't be too hasty in this because if we just keep it focused on boxing, who's still making money in boxing? Boxing's this really weird sport. And I was talking to a friend of mine, Brooke Stretfield. Shouts out to Brooke. Love Brooke to bits. And I was saying to Brooke, this is a dying sport because no one's really growing up with the sports anymore. An example, look, I, I, you know, I talk to lads in the gym that I, that I train and I train with and I'm around two or three times a week. Are they obsessed with boxing? No, they're obsessed with how they box, absolutely, and with how they can get ahead. But... It's not a hot bit of boxing talk like it was when we were young, when we were youngsters at the lodge and all we wanted to talk about was boxing, this fighter, that fighter. You know, even now I talk to one of my friends, Linton, and I mean, we're there watching Meldrick Taylor, we're watching James Tony still because that's how much we're boxing nerds. But I don't think you have that among the new generation. I think the boxing demographic is shifting upwards. You know, when you look at boxing shows, I reckon the average age at a boxing show must be mid to late 30s. And so everyone's drifting off into the sunset. And the thing about having an audience that's in its mid to late 30s is this. They have family commitments. They're not young, fast and free. They can't just spend money going to see Joshua fight in Vegas on a whim. You know, they have to think about family and they have to think about nappies and they think about making sure there's food in the house. You know, you're working hard now, so annual leave becomes a consideration. You know, you've got to take it off when the kids are off and all these sorts of things. And so you have an audience that's changing. And it's harder to reach them through marketing and advertising. And so DAZN finds itself in a sport at this point when it's hard to generate interest among the youngsters in boxing because this isn't a generation that was bred tough. 
in fact, they're the antithesis of this. I think boxing is something the youngsters now find abhorrent. And they go, well, why would you want to do that? Add in the discussions around CTE, add in deaths in the ring, add in the, the bullshit that gets spun continuously in boxing, add in these, these scumbags with microphones and cameras who just bore the shit out of you and tell you that their platforms are growing. All of these things detract from boxing and what you'll find in about five to ten years is the only people going back to shows will be the guys like Steve Bunce. It will go back to how it was before where it's just old guys who who have nowhere else where they can you know feel alive again apart from a boxing show. Fair play to them for that market but that's not what DAZN's looking for. And within that you now understand why they've gone for the KSI Logan Paul thing. You see why they've gone with these YouTubers Boxing purists say it's the wrong thing to do, but from a growth and sustainability perspective, it's the smartest thing to do because you have to get these youngsters involved in the sport somehow. If you want to grow your subscriber base, if you want to grow the sport, actually, and Hearn wasn't wrong when he said these YouTubers might be the reason kids take up boxing. And I don't like to agree with Hearn, but this might be the time where I have to. Because the markets shifted away and those youngsters with the disposable income who can go to boxing shows in a whim, who can go in groups of 10, 15, you know, male, female, mixed, doesn't matter. They're the guys you want. The guys who are going to these festivals are the guys you want at your shows. And right now, boxing struggling to attract those. And you see that in the zone numbers where they're not impressive. I won't say they're disappointing because, you know, how did Netflix start? How did Facebook start? How did Snapchat start? Very, very slowly and hemorrhaging money. So let's give this only chance to correct itself. But what you can take from the Thomas Hauser piece is there's an acceptance that boxes are massively overpaid for what they deliver. But that's just the cost of doing business now. As long as there's this excess capital in the sport, that's what we can expect from boxing. You know, Look, guys like Mikey Garcia earning money they probably don't deserve, but Mikey Garcia is a name that connects with the hardcore fans. But let's be honest, the boxing hardcore is tiny. And is it economically active in a sense that would interest the zone? Probably not. They're more illegal streamers and Twitter complainers than anything else, but that's not all fans. But, you know, the hardcore generally don't want to pay for something because they know they're not getting a good product. So who'd you sell the product to? The same people that will become subscribers to a KSI channel, I guess. You get 10% of his subscribers on your platform and you're doing well. But all of this is a mess. And I think the challenge the zone will now have is they've tried to throw money at boxes and these boxes haven't come because they're getting looked after elsewhere. So what's your, what's your plan B in boxing? Do you build your own stars and say, we'll just play the long game? Maybe. Maybe Joshua Boatsy, Lawrence Okoli are the guys that they need. Devin Haney, Austin Amo Williams, Otha Jones the third. Maybe these are the guys they need to spearhead this. All anchored by like in Anthony Joshua, for example. What we can say for absolute certain is you know, the zone of fast running out of money. And if their backer doesn't choose to follow through with investment. It'll be interesting to see how they make the model work in the United States, particularly in boxing, because 
that 300 million they've got given to Canelo, that's a that's a hefty pot of money considering their debt runs into the hundreds of millions. But overall, I will say one thing about DAZN. If you look at all the numbers over the years, at least the trend is up. And so when the trend is up, there's always hope because that's how Amazon started. It's how Netflix started. You know, once that trend goes up and you get the momentum. But I think there are two questions to answer. One, how do you engage young fans again? I think you can't ignore the amateur side of it. I think you've got to turn boxing back into a participation sport so people can connect with it. I'd be campaigning to get it back in schools because once you do that, you'll have boxing fans for life. I think we also have to review how we present boxing as a product. It's still not good enough. It's still stuck in the 90s. It's still pretty basic. And it doesn't give you that wow factor. You know, we don't get the spectacles anymore. And we definitely don't get the wars. And I think that's one of the problems, that there's so much content that the gap between great fights, you can't measure it in months anymore. If you measure it in terms of crap fights you watch in between, there's far too many. And that's what's demoralizing fans too. So I think, and I'm hoping to zone get the message, the key, the key point actually is to be more aggressive in your matchmaking. Start putting in guys, but put them in tough. Let them earn their shots. And if the matches are more or less equal, we should get entertaining fights. And that's what will bring fans to the zone, much like it did for the UFC. But we'll see where it goes. Um, I'm just conscious of time. And I think I feel pretty warm now, having done my warm-up session. But I just want to thank you guys for tuning in. I do have one request above all else. Like, just let me know things you want me to talk about. What's What's really getting at you in boxing? Questions, issues, whatever. Let's just... You know, let's let's break the format a bit. Let's let's do different things, talk about different things, you know. But the second and most important question I have is can everyone tweet, or if you're on Instagram, hit up Antonio Tava and say, When are you doing the beautiful boxing podcast with Highfield Boxing? Just ask him that, and I promise to God I will give you some of the best podcasts you've ever heard. That's the one I really want to do in the first quarter of this year is Antonio Tava. So please put that pressure on him and make sure that he plays ball because like, I think he's a fascinating character and I don't think his story's been told in a way that, you know, us as real boxing fans and guys who love the sport have had a chance to digest, you know, and then we'll see who we get from there. Maybe Roy will want to, you know, get involved too. But guys, look, as always, thank you. You know, keep liking, supporting, sharing and, you know, God bless you all and happy new year. May all your dreams come through, come true. Look, you may not like me. You may like me. You may just enjoy listening to me. I don't mind. Whatever you've got planned this year, roll your sleeves up, ignore the negativity, ignore the bullshit, go for what you want. And when you get disheartened, find another 20% and go harder. And if you do that for six months, tell me how far ahead of the crowd you are. Cheers, guys. Take care.